0: I had a question about, and you opened up the talk and you started talking about the political parties that Palestinians in the 48 territory joined. And a lot of them, you, you kind of oscillated between communist parties and left leftist parties. Um, I was hoping you could like unpack sure. the nuances of that. But also, where is that the extent of their political participation? Is it the Communist Party and the Leftist Parties? Where are, other, where are the other kind of um, parties that formed, that, mm-hmm. were, that joined, that had a critical mass of Palestinians? Right. And what were the other ways that Palestinians engaged in um, a politics at this time? Because I know that now... There's fierce debates on whether or not Palestinians should even participate in the electoral politics yep, system. Yep, yep. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't form political parties, but do they even, now that they have these parties, do they run for election? Do they right. run? So I was hoping, even like yep. bringing it to the contemporary.
1: Absolutely. So I'm glad you mentioned them because I'm actually working on a piece that, that elaborates on this a little bit more. Um, okay, so the two, so I want to take it basically sort of decade by decade because there are important changes that happen with each decade. So with the first decade (coughs) and really especially the first five years, so 48 to like mm, early mid 50s, there is a a tremendous trauma that is occurring throughout the Palestinian community and a tremendous um, intimidation by the Israeli um, authorities through the military government and all the rest of it. So to the extent that Palestinians are participating in like electoral politics, most of them are actually voting for Zionist parties. They're voting for Mapai, the dominant Zionist labor party, or they're voting for Arab lists that are basically co-opted and formed and, and funded by the Zionist um, by Mapai. So the Communist Party is getting 5% of the vote, 7% of the vote. I mean, they're getting like two seats, three seats in the Knesset. So it's a v- and of them, it's a, at first at least, it's a mixture of the electorate. So it's a, Arabs and Jews are voting for the Communist Party. So was a tiny percentage in terms of electoral politics and party politics, which I'm going to sort of stick to for now, uh, who are active. And so the communists, even though they have this room to maneuver, they are um, really, it was hard for them to do, and they were very intimidated. And people were afraid because you could get fired from your job if you were seen to be a member of the Communist Party. Um, Siham Dawood, who's a, now a prominent poet, told me that her she her dad would her dad was illiterate he worked in a quarry and she would read to him al-ittihad and she would like uh either he would have to like sneak it um because al-ittihad distribution the picture that i have here that's from the 60s when they're just like yeah. out in the street like yo al-ittihad for sale in the early 50s it's like under the table you know so Siham is like a 7 year old reading the newspaper to her dad she doesn't understand what he's saying he's unpacking it for her but he's also like, don't say this. Like, don't tell people you're reading al Right? So the Communist Party was really the extent to which you could have any kind of oppositional politics in Israel for the first, almost for the first decade. That starts to change in 58 for two reasons. One is, and this is partly where you have the regional um, influence happening. So you know that in the Arab world, we start to see First an alliance, and then a breakdown between the communists and the nationalists throughout the Arab world, largely around the UAR and then the collapse of the UAR. Something similar parallel happens in Palestine in 58, whereby you have the nationalists and the communists. So the Arab, so I would say the Arab Qomi nationalists, who had been boycotting elections, who didn't want to get involved in party politics, who did not recognize the legitimacy of, legitimacy of the state, started to... For a sort of expediency's sake, because of a whole host of things that happened in 56, 57, 58, join forces with the Communist Party. And they run a sort of joint political programming. But then um, you have the fallout between Nasser and the communists and the Syrian Communists, right? Late 58, 59. Um, and then you have the Israeli 59 Knesset elections. And with the Israeli 59 Knesset elections, you have a lot of people. So the Knesset 59 Knesset elections were 60 years ago, like this year. A lot of the same stuff that we saw about boycott or not boycott, the Israeli elections of 2019, we saw boycott, don't boycott the 1959 elections. Because what happens is a national an Arab nationalist qaumi party emerges, called al-Ard, very pro-Nasserist, very qaumi very critical of the um, communists, and they had been around, they just never, like, made themselves known. First thing the Ard movement says is, we're declaring a boycott of the 59 Knesset elections, 1959 Knesset elections, because, for the same reasons they said now, none of the existing parties truly represents our needs and our, and it's just like, reworking the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, so to speak, right? And so the communists, and so that's happening. And at the same time, also what we saw in 2019, which was MAPAM, the leftist Zionist party that I mentioned, trying to take advantage of the communist nationalist split by trying to peel off some of those nationalist voters who aren't going to be as radical as Al-Ard, because Al-Ard was seen as like super radical, right? But they couldn't bring themselves to vote for the communists because they were Naasirists, so MAPAM, co opt some of the language of Qalmi Arab nationalism to try to get people to vote for, to try to get Palestinians to vote for them in the 59 Knesset elections. And it works. So Mapam gains a seat, jihad loses as two seats I think. Um, but Arda also claims victory because the voter turnout was much lower than it was in the past. So these debates go way back is <laughs> the upshot of what I'm saying. And then it continues to sort of give you a sort of a bit of a fast forward. In the 70s, you have the same debate. You have a new generation now of Palestinian university students who are like, elections are crap. Uh, We aren't voting for because we are perpetuating our own marginalization within the state of Israel. And we instead should be working towards uh, not being better minorities within Israel but actually working towards the um, uh, a single state a single national state and a lot of those uh, proponents of that view win a number of student government elections at the universities but then in the 80s that um, because uh, so that was Abna' um, al-Balad was, was the primary vehicle through which that Discourse was being articulated, but because Abna al refused to run in Knesset elections, once students graduated from the university, there was no outlet for their political action. And the communists, in the meanwhile, had now reformulated themselves a few different times. By now they're called Kadash, still calling for a two-state solution, still calling for equal rights of Palestinians within Israel, and also contesting and running in the Knesset. And so, one of the things that I am um, talking about in this piece that I'm writing is that there's this con- there's this sort of um, consistency actually that we see over the last seventy years, which is that you have some Palestinians who join the Communist Party because they're diehard communists and they be- or they're diehard two-staters, and they're diehard, you know, they they believe ideologically in what the Communist Party is is selling. There are some who go into it, because it's the only game in town. It's the only legal game in town. But initially, at l- in the 50s, the only non-Zionist legal political party in Israel that accepted Arabs as equal members was the Israeli Communist Party. And there are debates, by the way, they're generational debates. So Amir Habibi, diehard communist, diehard ICP guy, Mahmoud Darwish not so much. Right? He joins more out of expediency. Sami so Al-Qasim joins reluctantly and only after he's jailed um, after 67 so Mikhail Qasim was actually an independent critic of all of them basically so, and then there's another thread that runs throughout from, from the last 70 some years now 71 years, which is the extent to which they work with the Zionist left and that's a huge debate so the uh, hardcore ICP guys are like yeah of course we work with the Zionist left because we believe in binationalism and workers' rights and so forth. Um, A lot of them also said that Israel is going to be a temporary thing until the workers of the world all unite, overthrow all the bourgeois nationalists and establish, you know, um, communist rule. But then there are others who are like, no, we're not working with the Zionist left. The Zionist left is just a kinder, gentler form of oppression, and we don't want to work with them. But they're also the ones that get thrown in jail, they're the ones that get demonized by the Israeli media, they're the ones who have themselves thrown in jail. I mean, it's draconian, right? So the members of Al-Ard who called for the boycott, they also published a super popular newsletter that was called Al-Ard. Well, it wasn't called Al-Ard. It, it's a, I explain in the book they took advantage of a loophole in the Israeli press law that allowed them to publish single-issue papers without a permit. So they, issued, they published a series of single-issue papers that collectively you can refer to them as a newspaper, but they sort of subverted. Anyway, they got shut down. They tried to establish themselves as a legal political party, and they got shut down. Um, beca- and each, at each point, it was because they were explicitly identifying as a Palestinian as a group, as part of the Palestinian people, as part of the Arab world. So it was a dangerous thing to do. There were very practical considerations. And so to loop it back to today... Um, and to loop it back to, you know, two weeks ago with the, with the elections and sort of the lead up to the Israeli Knesset elections, a lot of those same things are happening right now. Um, the, what's happening now, though, or what's happened since the 90s is that the party that became the, the outlet for sort of Qawmi nationalist uh, views, which is the NDA, the Tajamma, which is also the National Democratic Assembly, which is also known as Beled. Um, that was Azim Shada's party. Um, they sort of established themselves in '95 to be the political outlet for the people who didn't want to work with the Zionist left. But in the process of being in the Knesset, they've had to sometimes work with the Zionist left. And so you have a lot of activists outside of, poli- uh, outside of party politics who are like, mm-mm, uh this is not this is not working for us, and so tejemma's um campaign slogan was um uh like a new direction but with a with a constant compass um and so this idea is that we are we we retain our initial outlook, but we're gonna like jazz it up a bit and they brought some younger people and other stuff um but it's a constant thing. So on top of all of the regular party politics stuff, about corruption, about generational overturn, about you know who gets to call the shots, there are also these added pressures and added um, conundrums. Do we or do we not work with the Zionist left? Do we or do we not work with other Arab parties that aren't with the Zionist right for that matter? Do we or do we not engage in political in Knesset? Do we only run for local politics? Do we only run for for um, university? So, and then what are the consequences of each? So, a lot of it is constant, I would say, for, of what you're talking about. Um, I just gave you a lot more than maybe you bargained for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question enough. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um,
3: thank you very much for your talk. So, I, I have two questions. The first one I probably should ask, because I feel like you already gave um, a good response to it, Basically, just hearing you speak and set up, you know, the information I was curious about: to what extent um, the question of normalization with Zionism or taking it sort mm-hmm. of as a given was um, translated into an actual politic. And I think you talked about this a little mm-hmm. bit with communists and mm-hmm. with Mpong. And I'm just, I'm intrigued by the distinction between, you know, Rashid Hussein, for example, who was a part of Palm, you know, and was accused, mm-hmm. you know, for being a collaborationist, basically, mm-hmm. what you talk about in your book. Mm-hmm versus other forms maybe Mm -hmm. of how that manifested and then secondly i'm just curious about how this project um, informed your understanding of political and geographic fragmentation of uh, the palestinian struggle in general because i think for some of us you know there tends to be this narrative that the you know the peace process the oslo course is great trauma and that's cementing fragmentation in a very contemporary way but when i hear you speak and give all of this detail and some insight it seems to kind of complicate
1: some of that Mm -hmm. Alright so in terms of normalization um, this I would argue is also a limitation of the study in that because I was focused on um, published works and because what is able to be published in Israel is limited what, I tend, what my book mostly sort of analyzes and discusses are those texts that um, didn't cross the line. I think it would be a mistake to think that this was the full range of opinion held by Palestinians in Israel, because there were even people who thought Al-Ard was too mild, right, even though Al-Ard gets shut down for being too radical. And what we also need to think about are the strategic deployments of um, recognition and even normalization that were being taken into consideration. So, for example, when this um, joint, it was called the Populist Front, when it was formed in 58 of the Nationalists and the Communists together, they had to have their platform. Right? What is it that they stand for? And there was a lot of back and forth about do we explicitly recognize Israel or don't we? And the, fa- the very fact that they're debating this speaks to the politics and the, um, and the ways in which normalization was not taken for granted. But what sort of they concluded, at least according to the account, one of the accounts that I read, was that they were afraid that if they didn't explicitly recognize Israel in their statement of, sort of bylaws, that they would be shut down, Right. So these are the kinds of calculations that Palestinians are constantly making. To sort of tie it into a more recent example th- uh, related to cultural production, I, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the movie um, Barbahar bahar in between, mm-hmm. right? So it's uh, produced by a Palestinian woman in Israel, Meselun Aboud. And part of the funding for her film was through the Israeli Ministry of Culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so she was criticized for this. And her response was, this is my tax money, mm-hmm. right? My tax money goes to the Israeli Ministry of Culture. Why should I not take that out and use it for, to uh, tell the story of my people, and so the, the ways in which different Palestinian citizens of Israel negotiate their positionality vis-a-vis normalization, whether they seek to do so... So, I mean, Habibi, for example, or Tawfiq Tubi, some of the old guard, it wasn't a question for them. They were like, of course we're going to recognize them, and of course we're going to recognize Israel as a Jewish state, within the 47 lines, within the UN lines. We don't recognize them beyond that, but within the 40... Hannah Abu Hannah did the same. A lot of the old guard, I think, because... They were very much informed by the relational history that, like Lochman and some of these other people talk about. It very much informed their understanding of, of things. I think the younger generation takes on this more settler colonial paradigm. And then also, and this goes into your second question about fragmentation and sort of looking sort of earlier than Oslo. I think that a lot of Palestinians, for example, in the 70s, um, to take one example, saw themselves very explicitly as part of the Palestinian national movement. They didn't see themselves as just operating within Israel. And the discourses around Land Day, for example, are fascinating because the organizers of Land Day put out the word, hey, there's Land Day coming up, and so there are accounts There's like uh, announcements about Land Day coming up in Jordan, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Pakistan, in Malaysia. There were um, solidarity protests and solidarity with (coughs) Land Day. So Land Day, which was 1976, is often, again, it's presented as this local thing about how Palestinians were pushing back against the Israeli authorities and land grab. No, it had a transnational dimension to it. So... I think your, but I, what I think Oslo did that was unique was that it ex, it it um, signaled the exclusion of the Palestinian citizens of Israel from the Palestinian national body politic, but that exclusion was being done and perpetuated by the highest levels of the Palestinian leadership, and that's the thing that really stung. That's the thing that was really like, oh, man. Like, it's one thing if the Israelis are doing it. It's one thing if Arab regimes are doing it. It's one thing if, like, circumstances are... So. But with the Declaration of Independence, and then especially especially with the Oslo Accords, the, PL and the PLO leadership is basically saying, you're an internal Israeli affair. We have nothing to do with you. And it was especially galling because in the 70s and 80s, one of the things that would get you in big trouble... As a Palestinian activist in Israel, is to say the PLO is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. And that was like a mark of like to show your, your like Palestinian street cred, you would say, I believe the PLO, and you'd get denounced by the Israelis and denounced by the media, and you know, you're a terrorist or whatever. So here they are for like a decade or t- and a half, too, saying PLO is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people and then the PLO leadership is like we're done with you so that's the part that is particularly traumatizing and even though there are these earlier manifestations of it that's I think the point that really is like thank you Mm -hmm.
2: so thank you so much um, i apologize. I don't think my questions are very well formulated but one of them is really um, I'm interested in the um, the publishing houses that mm-hmm. they were able to publish in, like where were they getting their funding how were they maintaining themselves like under i'm sure like multiple forms of like attempts to take away whatever permits or whatever yep, access yep, yep. they would have to i'm just thinking even like on the most mechanical level yeah like machinery absolutely and, like how you're going to sell these too later on like yeah, yeah is yeah. it going to be a self-sustaining operation sure. so i'm interested in that part. And then the second part, which is much less well-formulated, but when you mentioned Anton Shamas, I mm-hmm. just thought about, in your intellectual history that you're painting, what about texts that are written in other languages, not just Hebrew, but other diasporic languages mm-hmm. for Palestinians? How were they, How when, do you look in your book at how and when they were translated into Arabic, and whether or not they were
1: then like mm-hmm.
2: brought up into this um, kind of intellectual trajectory for, mm-hmm. for Arab intellectuals at the time?
1: Yes. Okay. So so the publishing mechanics are themselves fascinating And of course incredibly political yeah. So one of the reasons why we mostly have uh, um, Publications from the Israeli Communist Party that the Israeli Communist Party had The means, because of the Soviet Union right. And had the legal cover right. Because they were a legal party And they were Jewish-Arab mixed So that's why, so uh, Al-Itihad runs from 1948, it actually still goes till today. Mm-hmm. Jadid starts in '53 and continues throughout the period I study. And so it's basically Soviet money okay. that goes into that. Al-Ard, interestingly enough, when they wanted to publish their single-issue papers, they went to al Ittihad publishing house. It was like, can we use your machinery? They're like, no. Hmm.
4: no.
1: Because the old guard of the Israeli Communist Party, the Palestinians... And a certain um, (coughs) novelist uh, in particular, a Knesset member, hated Al-Ard. Like, this is a little bit of juicy gossip that I I toned it down for the book because I didn't want to be too, like, gossipy. But Amir Habibi hated them. Like, he really, and he was the editor of al Tihad, and so he would be the one who had the final say. So he was like, no, they cannot use our, and none of the Zionist parties are going to use it. So what Al-Ard did was they found someone who had in his private home the remnants of a Mandate era wow. publishing uh, machine, And it was like, just, they cranked it out. And they, they collected donations as part of the um, sort of rules about single-issue papers. You can't sell them, right? Mm-hmm. So they would distribute them and ask for donations. And they sustained it for about... Three months, October of fifty-nine to January, or February maybe of sixty, and then they got raided by the police, the Israeli military police. Raided their printing press, confiscated. They had their like thirteenth issue, I think, was in press, and um, you know the the you have the copies and then you have the original. They they whisked it all away. They slapped them with fines and said you are violating the publishing laws and you're done. Uh, there was a MAPAM in its quest to um, gain Arab supporters. They, for a while, sponsored some Arabic publications. There was Al-Marsad, which was the newspaper, mm-hmm. and a journal called Al-Fajr. Um, but then Al-Fajr got too independent for them, and so they <laughs> shut them down. So, so budget is one of the ways, and that's why I'm so glad you asked this question, because the mechanics of publishing, the politics of publishing, and the economics of publishing are all intertwined mm-hmm. and they're all very much a part of what we mean when we say the worldliness of texts, mm-hmm. right? Because the, a text becoming a text and tra- and going from the mind of the author onto a, like a manuscript, into typeset, mm-hmm. into a machine to be reproduced, into the hands of other people, like that's a big project mm-hmm. and at any point can be easily disrupted. Right and disrupted they were. (laughs) So the other question about texts in other languages is a fascinating one. There is um, another scholar who's actually working on this I think a little bit more um, in depth than I am. Um, And I'll I'll, I'll remember her name in a bit. Um, So there are a few different ways that texts uh, in other languages were acquired. Sometimes they were translated into Arabic, Mm -hmm. either the Soviet Union had a publishing house and there was, um, in the early years there was a publication called International Literature that was published by the Soviet Union and was published in multiple languages including Arabic including English rather was Arabic one? later on was Arabic Um, sometimes you would have local translators sometimes you would have regional Arabic communist translators, so something in a tariq or somewhere else that was translated by like a Syrian or Lebanese or Egyptian would get reproduced in al Ittihad. Sometimes it was local translators. But then the other thing to remember is that most of these intellectuals read English, right. and many of them also may have read a third language, or a fourth language, right? Because there's Arabic, Hebrew, English, and then in many cases, French. So that's four languages that they're able to access. Um, so Mahmoud Darwish for sure read Hebrew, Arabic, and English. Um, I think Emil Habibi would have read French, so that's another way that they would have accessed these texts in other languages.
4: I'm gonna ask you a, a different question sure. on the book. Uh, yeah, I, it's not that I don't like <laughs> but it's it's actually a piggyback on what uh, Jesse just mentioned. Uh, I'm sure he, in there were conversation in this during this period about the tape, especially when it comes to poetry, mm-hmm. uh, the cassette tape, mm-hmm. as well as the uh, photocopy machine. Mm-hmm. So. So, where does this fit, and the rating, so because mm-hmm. uh, I remember there was a lot of conversation going on, especially between the Communist Party in, in Morocco mm-hmm. and uh, in Tunisia, between conversation with these, with these intellectuals, but all of these were done through tapes, mm-hmm. yeah, when it comes to the food, the focus on the, on the poetry, mm-hmm. so did, did have, you, have you given any thought to this as far as, especially in 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 these interviews that you've done, mm-hmm. or have you seen any uh, conversation in in uh, the archive about these about these, these mechanisms of also transmitting? Yeah, it also fits in. It fits in the the big mm-hmm. theoretical framework that you laid mm-hmm. out like, really beautifully about Edward Said and the social life of the text.
1: Absolutely. So I I think that ha- were I to take my timeline further, because my book basically ends in like seventy seventy one, 71, were I to take it into the 70s and 80s, I'm sure I'd find more information. So I didn't come across information in what I've done so far on cassette tapes or photocopies. I did find about radio, though. Radio is really interesting because radio debuts in the mid-60s that you start to see Palestine broadcasting Mm -hmm. from Beirut, from Amman, and from Cairo. So uh, Soltan al Arab starts to devote a program to Palestine in like the early 60s, and then there's like a Solt Philistine in Damascus in like the mid 60s, and then Beirut also um, with the rise of the PLO there has a Solt Palestine. So they have programs that are devoted to the pal- to to um, the Palestinian cause, and there is actually a really interesting story. I briefly mentioned it, but I'll give you the, the the more elaborate version here. So the Damascus-based uh, broadcaster, his name was Harun Hashem Rashid, Rashid, and he himself was a poet and also a radio broadcaster, and he was in charge of the uh, uh, Salt Palestine program. It was like an hour a week, I think it was, and so when can so he gets access to some of the early, early poetry of Darwish and Qasim, even before Kenefani, or maybe around the same time as Kenefani. And he's interested in it. And he wants to like have it broadcast over the radio. And he actually debuts some of it. And i are like, eh, tafe, It's like not good quality. <laughs> because who are these kids? They're they're kids first of all. And the youth politics dynamic is really interesting. So they're young, and to be honest, honestly, honestly, like, if I, if I put my literary analyst hat on me, a lot of the earliest poetry of Darwish and the Possum and all that were not the best aesthetically. Like, I mean, we can be <laughs> honest about that, right? Yeah. So I get why a lot of these sort of seasoned poets would not be that interested in them. As they become more famous, especially after 67... Two things are happening simultaneously. One is that there's a lot more interest in these Palestine radio broadcasts. They're getting a lot more audience, a lot more attention, much bigger audience and more attention. And then the broadcasts themselves are highlighting more centrally Adab al right, uh, the uh, re- resistance literature, and Shuhara al-Muqawwama, and Darwish and Qasim and all of this. So they have a new platform in which they get a lot more attention than they would have otherwise. And I, I suspect, but I haven't confirmed, that, the, that their prominence on the radio is what triggers the interest in their books, right? Because I can look at circulation of text and I focus on the circulation of text. A subsequent project would need to be thinking about how you understand the oral, like a ziyad fahmi type of um, study. Thinking about what's being transmitted orally when, how does that correlate with people's understandings of adab al muqalama? So that's a re- it's a really great question that awaits further research. That's how I would answer. We have to for one
4: or two questions. How was it just? Ali, put you on the spot. No, no, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I looking at the last two
5: images, I mean, uh-huh. uh, not being really familiar with things, uh, it was like um, reminding me of Eve Sedgwick's book Between Men. You know, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, this <laughs> one, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering. Obviously, you haven't done. Um, I mean, you haven't um, sort of written about women, but what was the po- gender politics among the men? Mm-hmm. Were they? How did they sort of? Um, I mean, because at the same time, so, much, so many of these movements, anti-colonial mm-hmm. movements were also connected to all kinds of minority rights, to women's rights, mm-hmm. and so on. Where, did you see any sort of discussion or debates about questions of politics of gender mm-hmm. rather yes. than women as as
1: Yes, and so the reason I said uh, there's a little bit As opposed to saying there's none Is that there's a little bit (laughs) Um, That is, again, a sort of separate project that I'm working on And there are a couple of ways in which it manifests One is through the sort of classic Cold War uh, contestation of ideas And so you have a lot of articles, particularly in Al-Atihad That talk about the sort of the new Soviet woman and an alternative modern gender, um, sort of modern woman that is an alternative to the Western liberal um, mm-hmm. concept of a modern woman. And this idea of the Soviet woman, the, the Soviet Union giving women their rights and, and things like that. So there's, this, there's a one w- sort of set of discourses around that idea that's very centered in sort of Cold War contestations. There's another set of discourses that we find not in the communist press, Not even in Mapam, but interestingly enough, there was, I didn't mention it yet, but the the state of Israel, the Ministry of Arab Affairs, had its own Arabic newspaper called Al Yom that was a bit, uh, that was propagandistic. It was very propagandistic and about how great the state of Israel is towards its Arab citizens, so forth and so on. And there we see a colonial, the, the deployment of a colonial gender discourse that talks about the state as emancipating women from mm-hmm. these backwards, traditional Arab, mm-hmm. cultural, etc. But also embedded within it, if you read, um, if you do a, a sort of contrapuntal reading, what we also find are moments where women are resisting that co-optation, where Palestinian women are resisting that co-optation. So for example, there was a meeting, Golda Meir in 1949 like, or 50, met with a delegation of Palestinian women who had themselves been active in the mandate period, right? The role of women in the mandate period is well-known, uh, particularly among sort of um, middle-class, upper-class women. And so a small group of them went to meet with Golda Meir, and this was touted on the front page of El Yom as like Golda Meir meeting with, you know, these women and sharing their ways in which they're going to help women, you know, Arab women. Um, but the reason the delegation was there was to try to convince Golda Meir to adjust the um, family reunification policies because what was happening, this was still like in the midst of a lot of families were separated. Um, the only way that Palestinians could apply for family reunification is if the husband was in the country and the wife and kids were outside the country. right? If it was the opposite, right, the wife was in the country Husband and kids were out, outside the country, she could not apply to bring them in for family reunification. So, this delegation of women went to Golda Meir to try to get her to make that policy more egalitarian, right, to allow for both genders to um, apply for family reunification. And Goldemeyer was like, oh, sorry, can't, you know. And so, uh, so, one of the participants, her name is Najma Qawar Farah, she writes in her uh, memoir, about this encounter. And if you contrast it with the al Yom um, sort of coverage of this encounter, it's night and day, right? Golda Meir talks about how we're all sisters. da. Najwa Qawar is like, we came with our demands, and she ignored us, and we left tremendously disappointed. So those are some of the ways in which gender dynamics are deployed. Um, those are sort of two examples. I say those are the two most prominent examples that come out um, from the textual material, I think, again, with further research, e- it would be really fascinating to think about the ways in which, um, gender politics plays out in, like, party meetings and things like that, mm-hmm. which, uh,
5: yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I, came late, so, <laughs> uh, this is that's fine. Nice. um, I have a question regarding, um, if during this time period you studied anything about labor movements of uh, Palestinian uh, mm-hmm. forty-eight Palestinians, um, because from what I can understand now, uh, there are companies operating in Israel that do hire, such as Intel, to hire like a large number of Palestinian uh, forty-eight Palestinians as mm-hmm. employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if there's like a history behind you know, labor movements that they work with, you know, like. Israeli labor unions, did mm-hmm. they form their own? Mm-hmm. Um, what were their demands? Was it more associated with trying to gain uh, sort of like more rights in the workplace? Was it more so um, guided towards you know, mm-hmm. the. Right. So
1: about? a couple of things were happening at this time. One is that the main labor union in Israel was the Histadrut, right? And so that's very closely affiliated with the state and w- actually with the Mapai party specifically. Yeah. And the Histadrut so the Histadrut's the main labor organi- organization for like workers' rights and l- wage and time off and things like that. But um, Arab workers could not be members of Histadrut. It was just for Jew and the the acronym of Histadrut is like the Federation of Jewish Workers. Mm-hmm. So to deal with that, there were two um Strategies that were deployed, depending on who you like, they are deployed simultaneously by different people. Mapam and some of the Arab list parties that were affiliated with Mapai worked towards ha- opening up Histadrut to Arab laborers so that they would have the same work ri- workers' rights and benefits that Jewish workers had. And then, meanwhile, the Communist Party was working to establish. Sort of an alternative labor union, you could say, and they worked with some of the pre-48 labor unions. There's one called PAZ, the Palestinian Arab Workers Society, um, and then there's some other labor unions. Um, and so they had they didn't really have an interest in integrating into Histadrut because to do so would also integrate into their main political rival, which was Mapai. So you had two, and so workers. So, the laborers themselves, who were primarily blue collar laborers at this time, um, those were basically their options. And so, to go back to an earlier point I made, people who didn't want to um, try to. And then, so the History drew opened up its doors to Arab workers partially in 59, and then fully um, like 64 or 5 at some point in there. So, you had Arab laborers who um, joined the Israeli Communist Party so that they could have workers' rights without compromising their political views, even though they didn't necessarily fully agree with the communists. Now, what you're talking about is a manifestation of something that happens in the 70s and 80s, which is the professionalization of Palestinians in Israel and their integration into the white-collar workforce. The period that I study in the 50s and 60s, even if you had a high school degree, even if you had a college degree, you could not get a white-collar job in Israel. You would be a quarryman, maybe, maybe a desk job, maybe. Um, so white collar or professional jobs start to open up to Palestinians in like the seventies, eighties, nineties. But by then, Histadrut has weakened tremendously, um, and you have other mechanisms for labor and workforce, but also other considerations that workers have to think about, like do I work for this company that pays decently or do I work for this, uh, you know, upstart that doesn't, for example.
5: And, and did the introduction of, like, um, labor from other countries also have something to do
1: with it? Yes. Like labor- so, yeah, for sure, the labor from other countries had um, something to do with it, the rise of education. Also, the so two things happen as we move from the 80s into the 90s into the, the aughts, which is that you have... Increasingly, the blue collar labor was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, was coming from Palestinians in the occupied territories. Starting in the 90s and, and especially in the early 2000s, that gets cut off. And so they start importing foreign labor from Asia and Africa to take up those blue collar jobs. Um, but you also just have a rise in educational levels among the Palestinians in Israel. And so there's a growing. Um, unwillingness to take blue-collar jobs, growing competition for those more professional jobs, um, and then you also have dynamics of transnational movement as well, whereby you have Palestinians in Israel who get jobs in Jordan or in the Gulf or in Europe or in America and so forth. So there's that dimension as well. Thank you. You yeah.
4: have one more, last, th- one last question. Yes, <laughs> last one. Last
0: okay. okay. <laughs> well, I just uh, well. One of the things is you ended your, your talk by an invitation of thinking through how is it that um, the military rule of 48 to 66 kind of in, you know, leads into kind of occupational rule of after 67. But one of the, the key kind of theme across your book is also kind of the connection the literary connections that kind of unify and are a mode of transgressing the isolationism. So I was actually curious about like, exploring the different sites. You know, you, you, you share kind of these vignettes of like, you know, the eight year olds who's reading like her father. But I was wondering about like incarceration. Yeah. You know, because you're talking a lot about illegality, right? Yep. Legal illegality yep. and they're threatening uh Tukan with saying you can't if you leave your house at this time you're gonna be arrested. So <laughs> arrests are rampant, right? Uh-huh. And so you have a large carceral, you know, body. Absolutely. So I was wondering When you're talking about the consumption of these, you know, texts that are being produced, how does that look like within kind of incarceration, and are kind of cultural like like cultural politics informing the writing that's being consumed beyond kind of the 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 walls, you know, the um, the prison itself, and what does that look? Because we know in the contemporary that there's you know there's a huge you know like communication that's happening across prisons but what about in this period of,
1: um, I uh, so I will answer hopefully briefly with an anecdote Lovely. so Mahmoud Darwish uh, as he was becoming more famous kind of locally especially after his poem Sajjil an Arabi he is has now permits that he too is not allowed to leave a certain place or go into places he's invited to a poetry reading in Jerusalem so he goes to Jerusalem without a permit, or in violation of his permit. <coughs> so he gets arrested. He gets imprisoned for a several month period. While in prison, he write, That's when he writes his um, sort of first majorly famous work, Asherun as Filastin, A Lover from Palestine, in which he talks very much about his isolation from his family, and he also deploys this metaphor of Palestine as the estranged beloved or as the, the unreachable beloved. Um, that poem he writes, or that's, it's a series of poems, really, he writes while in jail, his first sort of major incarceration period, and that is what really puts him on the map in the Arab world. So when he becomes famous in the Arab world, when Hassan Kanafani talks about this great poet, he's citing Aashikman Philistine.